G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Jesus agrees that we are all unclean before God, but He strongly disagrees with these religious leaders. What makes one unclean? Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff is getting deeper into the book of Mark. Today, he's in Mark chapter 7. This is where the Pharisees, the religious folk, confront Jesus about cleanliness. Now, we're all very much aware of hand washing these days, but in this passage, Jesus has a different view of what makes us unclean. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now on Today with Jeff Vines. We did this series because we came to the conclusion that when we ask a lot of people to follow Jesus, they would respond by saying something like, well, which Jesus are you talking about? Will the real Jesus stand up? Are you talking about the Jesus that the media portrays? Are you talking about the Jesus that the conservative right party portrays or the liberal media portrays? Which Jesus are you talking about? So we wanted to go back to an objective source, somewhere where we could go that we could know what Jesus is truly like. And it's truly been a remarkable series. Now, along the way, we've learned something crucial. Most people, when they start contemplating different religions, they automatically assume that all religions are fundamentally similar, only superficially different. When the reality is the opposite. Religious systems by nature fundamentally contradict each other. They are fundamentally opposed to each other and only superficially similar. Now, when you bring Jesus Christ into the whole measure, then what you have is a completely different philosophical faith system. And we've been learning about the distinctions between Jesus and other faith systems or philosophies. But I want to tell you something. This is the mother of all distinctions. And right away in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus encounters, guess who? The religious people of his day. And here's what happens. The Pharisees, I mean, verse 1, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now look up and let me unpack this for you quickly. Get us on the right path. Folks, it's like asking the question, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And what's the big deal? Well, there were Old Testament cleanliness laws that 
were to be followed in the tradition of the fathers of the faith. And they come along to Jesus, these religious leaders, and they say, your disciples, your followers are not following traditions, why not? Now, stick with me here, because we gotta do a little history. Uh, when I was a, a kid, uh, I would run out the door with my Little League Baseball uniform on. Uh, the, the Little League Baseball field was like five blocks away. And on the way out the door, moms, you'll remember, my mother would scream at me and she'd say, Jeffrey Allen Vines, you know, you use all three names when you're in trouble. Jeffrey Allen Vines, where are you going? I say, mom, I've got a game in a half an hour. I got to go. She goes, you're not going out of the house looking like that. And she wanted to clean and press my uniform. And I'm saying to my mom, mom, why do you want to do that? Because I'm going to slide into second base within 10 minutes of the game and I'm going to be all nasty. Why would you clean? And she said, that's not the point. And I would say, what is the point? And she'd say, the point is that you do what I tell you to do. <laughs> Mothers are full of useless information like that. <laughs> so my mom would spend hours ironing my uniform, bleaching my socks. She would hand wash my hat and jersey. And then she'd look at me as I go out the door. Remember, young man, no young man of mine is going to go out in public without being presentable. Now, evidently, this idea of being presentable is also important to my wife when she goes out in public because I noticed she started to speak to me in code. <laughs> I think I shared this with you before, but she'll go to her closet and she will look and she will say, I have absolutely nothing to wear. Now, this is amazing to me. And I've learned over time that when she goes to the closet, she goes, I have absolutely nothing to wear and I see all these clothes there, it's code for this. I have nothing to wear that will not make me look like a fashion challenge hag married to a cheapskate. That's what she means. <laughs> so being presentable is important to her as well. Now, here's my point, just quickly. When you go out for a job interview or when you go out on a date or any public appearance, we tend to wash our hair or our hairs, depending on how many we have, brush our teeth. We put on our best clothes and best shoes and deodorant because we don't want to go out in public with bad odor or bad breath. As a sign of uncleanness, we want to look presentable, make a good first impression. Now, here's the point. In the Old Testament, the cleanliness laws operated on the same premise. If you were going to meet with God and commune with God, you were going to have to present yourself in a presentable fashion. You were going to have to be clean. And as a matter of fact, there were laws written that you had to follow so that if you had any boils or rashes or sores or infections, or if you'd come into contact with any impurity, or if you'd eaten the meat of an animal that was designated as unclean, all of that disqualified you from being able to come into the temple and meet with God. Now take yourself back to the Hebrew mind, man. Meeting with God in the temple was the highlight of the week. It was crucial. So you would watch yourself, what you ate, what you came into contact weeks before the day of the temple. And it was important to you. Under the Old Testament law then, simply put, if you're going to commune with God, you're going to have to go through some type of ceremonial cleansing. Now, here is the rub, folks. Jesus agrees that we are all unclean before God, but he strongly disagrees with these religious leaders. What makes one unclean? The source of uncleanness. So he tries to elaborate, in fact, does in verse 14. He calls the crowd to himself, and this is what he says. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. So he's not talking just to his disciples, the crowds around. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him, Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now, look up. Stay with me. This is kind of like a funnel again. We're going to put places in, and it's all going to come out in the end, and it's going to make sense. You've heard me say numerous times that we are living in one big loony bin, this world. I mean, in the words of Malcolm Muggridge, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. Think about it. 
On one hand, we say there's no ultimate right or wrong. The categories of absolute right and wrong do not exist. And yet we protest in America about everything. So we get upset when somebody doesn't agree with our system of right and wrong. Worse than that, we continue to make the claim that man is intrinsically and basically good inside. And yet there have been more wars and genocides in the last generation than all generations combined of human history. But the worst thing we do is we say that if God does exist, and we're not sure that he does, he is not the kind of God you Christians portray. He is not a transcendent holy deity before whom we stand guilty and condemned. The idea that God is there and we are here and he is holy and we are sinners and ought to be ashamed of ourselves and we are condemned in his sight is an archaic, old-fashioned, fundamentalist view of God that we've got to do away with. But here is the uncanny irony. While we're shouting that everywhere, inside, we just don't be able to seem to shake these ideas of guilt and condemnation and sense of unworthiness that we all have. I had a friend in high school. We were at a basketball camp. We were all sharing our faith. It's kind of a revival at a basketball camp. Imagine that. I was 16 years old. Something I'll never forget. A guy actually gets saved in the meeting. There's one guy over in the corner that waits till we're all finished. We're kind of praying, reading the Bible, and asking a lot of God-like questions. His name is Nathan, and he comes over to me. He says, Jeff, I, I, I wonder if you can help me. I said, sure, Nathan, what is it? He said, well, I don't seem to be able to shake these feelings of guilt and shame of the things I'm doing, but I don't believe in God. So I was wondering if you could help me deal with the shame and guilt and unworthiness without bringing in the God factor. Now you understand what he's asking. He's wanting me to treat the symptom, not the greater disease. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, upon which this series is based, says though we have abandoned the ancient categories, we still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we'd be rejected. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us. Secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove to ourselves and other people that we're worthy, lovable, valuable. You hear what he's saying? Even though we've done away with God and the absolute categories of good and evil, we still can't seem to shake this idea that we have that there's something deeply wrong in us and it needs fixing. And here's what you say to me, Pastor Jeff, I don't know Tim Keller and I don't know you that well really, but I can tell you that you're both out to lunch because I have plenty of friends who have no problem whatsoever shaking the feelings of guilt and shame and unworthiness. And my response is this, no, they're simply masking it. When I was coaching uh, baseball in New Zealand, Delaney was about seven years old. First game of our season. He was my best hitter, played first base because he was the only one that could catch the ball. He gets up, it's his turn to bat. There are a couple of guys on base, put the ball on the tee, smacks it. Now there's no fence in New Zealand. They just have a barrier. So you have to run and chase it down before the guy gets all the way around to home plate. Delaney gets up, hits the ball. I got all this on video. Now Delaney is speed challenged. Delaney has two gears, slow and slower. As a matter of fact, I'm really concerned that he'll ever get married. I think it'll take him 30 years to pop the question. But he hits a ball. He stops halfway between home plate and first base. Dad, did you see that? Yes, son, I saw it. Keep running. He goes around first, stops between first and second. Dad, did you see that? 
Son, I saw it. Keep running. Now, by this time, they're chasing the ball. Even though he's hit it a long way, it's going to be close. And he's not paying attention to the ball at all. He's just so proud of himself. From second to third, he stops. Dad, did you see that? And he runs to third base. It's close play at home. He slides in. He's safe. Stands up, dusts himself off and says, Dad, did you see that? (laughs) Yes, son. I saw it. Now, here's my point. 26 years of ministry has taught me something about driven people. All of us, we are little boys and little girls inside doing the things we do so that we can shout to the world, did you see that? Look at me, I'm worthy, I matter, I'm significant, I'm above mediocrity, I'm not average. And the things we do, the things that drive us is to prove to ourselves we're not unclean inside, we're good. We deserve to commune with God. We're honorable. Look at what we did. We're worthy. I see this on the golf course all the time. They'll put me with players I don't know. And uh, you can learn a lot about a guy when you play around the golf with him. You can learn if he has integrity, if he cheats, does he move his ball? You know, golfers who move their ball think nobody sees him. We see you. Because as we're walking to ours, we're doing this to you. We're watching. And you can, you can determine what a guy's like if he's a good or a bad winner or loser. And inevitably, for some reason at my club, there's a lot of bad winners and bad losers. Now, part of that is because, okay, I don't know how, this may be another sermon for Pastor Jeff called Humility, but I'm not a bad golfer, so I, I do usually win. I'm just saying. <laughs> so I do learn something about the people that I play with. And oftentimes I will play with people. We don't even know each other. And man, their language is terrible. They'll throw clubs. They'll, and they're just so angry. And I'm thinking, it's just a game, man. There's no gambling, no money involved. And over time, I've learned something. That a lot of people will attach themselves to a sport or a hobby. And their feeling of significance and worthiness that they really matter is attached to how successful they are in that hobby, in that job, whatever it is. So these golfers, it's important for them to win because inside there's a little voice that says, look at me, I'm worthy, I'm significant, I should be accepted, I should be honored. Look at me, what I can do. I see it through 26 years of ministry. The driven men and women, not all of them, but there's a voice that symbolically screams inside them. They want to say, I matter. I'm worthy. Look at what I can do. And if I keep shouting loud enough and long enough, I can quieten this nagging voice inside me that keeps saying that I am broken and in desperate need of repair. So Jesus is saying, I agree with you that there's something wrong inside us, but you're dealing with it, disciples, in the wrong way. It's not what comes from the outside that defiles It's something inside you. So he goes on, and I love this verse 18. A beautiful Greek word here. He says, are you so dull? That's similar to the Greek word moros that means moron. (laughs) Are, are, Are you not thinking? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. Now, there are many illustrations pastors have that they can't share on the weekend because they... They kind of border a line, but not now. Because Jesus' comment, if we could do this in the original language, is pretty vulgar. About 15 years ago, a friend of mine, Ron Potter, and I went to watch an LPGA tour event in Nashville, Tennessee called the Sarah Lee Classic. And we wanted to see Annika Sorenstam hit a golf ball. She was very young then. And so... Ron brought a friend of his that I'm just going to describe, a rather large man, and he loved to eat. 
Now, let me tell you something, just so you know for the future. You cannot eat six or seven chili dogs and walk a lot. Okay? So if you're eating six, seven chili dogs and you've got some chili fries in there as well, the time will come. And so we rush over to the 10th tee where Annika Sorenstam is about to hit her tee shot. She's playing in a threesome, so there's two golfers before her. Ron and I are standing on the 10th tee waiting, and we see our friend running toward the Porta Johns on the left side of the 10th fairway. And we're like, wow. Oh, and you could just tell this guy's hurting. <laughs> now, unfortunately for him, Annika Sorenstam pulled her tee shot into the left rough right by the portalette into which he has entered. <laughs> but he didn't know it because the crowd in golf gets really quiet. So there are hundreds of people around this Porta John. <laughs> now, in order that I can keep this illustration G-rated, I'm just going to say that the sounds and aromas emanating from this Porta John were quite embarrassing. So Annika Sorenstam has to back away from her golf ball and gather herself because she's laughing. <laughs> and there's like four or five hundred people around just around this Porta John. It's terrible. And of course, Ron and I are acting like we have no idea who this guy is. He's not our friend. And I, it, it was just, it was funny. Finally, she gathers herself, hits her shot, walking down the fairway, just smiling. At which point, the timing was uncanny. He walks out of the Porta John to a standing ovation. <laughs> now, as graphic as that illustration is, it's no more graphic than what Jesus says here. He says, guys, when you take something on the outside and put it on the inside, it goes into your mouth, down your esophagus, into the small intestines, into the latrine but it never gets in your heart. Therefore, nothing from outside a man can make him unclean. That is not the problem. So he goes on in verse 20. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, Arrogance and folly, all these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Now, I want you to notice something. We Christians have a really bad habit of classifying sins as worse than others. I want you to notice what's in that category. Sexual immorality along with envy, wanting something that someone else has, slander, speaking maliciously about someone, arrogance, folly. All these, Jesus says, they come from the inside. G.K. Chesterton was an incredible author and writer, prolific writer, and he wrote what is considered to be the, the shortest letter to any editor. It was the New York Times, and there was an article entitled, What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton read the article and wrote a response to the editor, and here's what he said. Dear sir, in response to the article in the New York Times, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I'm what's wrong with the world. You're what's wrong with the world. Jesus is saying, if you want to know why the world is such a miserable place and there's strife among nations and races and tribes and classes, and you want to know why all relations seem to disintegrate, it's because we are what's wrong with them. There is something in us that has to be repaired. And here's the whole point of the passage. As long as you keep trying to address this internal struggle with external means, you will never get rid of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the feeling of unworthiness and uncleanness and inconsequentiality. You will always feel until you get that dealt with that you don't matter in the world. And yet here's the problem. Most of us keep trying. There are two ways we try to defeat it from the outside. 
Now this first one's going to scare you because the problem with it is it's probably the most popular in the world and it can do the most damage because it can give you a false sense of security. And the number one way we try to get rid of this uncleanness is by religion. This is the person that says this, you know what? I'm going to get rid of this sense of unworthiness and shame and guilt by going to church every Sunday. And I'm going to listen to Pastor Jeff's sermons and I'm even going to download them on my iPad. I'm going to listen to them twice. (laughs) And I'm going to pray more and I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do a lot of good things and then I'm going to show God, look at me, I'm clean on the inside. I am worthy to commune with you. Yeah, and if that doesn't make me feel better than what I might do if I have to, I'll go feed the hungry. I'm going to go find some hungry people and feed them. And then God will see that I'm clean on the inside and worthy. And if that doesn't make me feel better, I think I'll help the homeless. I'll go rescue a homeless guy. And then God will see that I'm worthy. And then I can meet with him and him with me. A story that is seldom told concerns Mother Teresa. Now, you've heard me talk about Mother Teresa. Great strides in mercy and compassion in the streets of Calcutta. Helping the poorest of the poor. Truly a saint. But after Mother Teresa died, there were articles being written and books as well on the secret life of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is so well respected that you knew that the authors would be respectful of her life. But you know what came across in all the articles? And there were so many people who were surprised. And I got to tell you, when I started reading them, I wasn't very surprised. It said that for most of her life, she did not feel close to God. She even wrote her fellow priest asking them, desperately crying out for help. How can I feel that God approves of me? How can I feel that he loves me? She even prayed to dead priests to ask them to come back and show her a vision that God had accepted her. Think about Mother Teresa. Where does that put you and me? But it doesn't surprise me at all, and here is why. When you grow up in a system that tells you your acceptance before God is based on merit and how much good you do, you will never have the joy and the abundant life Jesus came to bring. Because you will always know inside that you are unclean. And worse yet, when you try to purify yourself from outside means, you're actually going to become even more anxious. Because every time you do something wrong, you're going to think God is out to get you. And he's up there in heaven erasing your name from the book of life. And there's going to be this constant nagging question that becomes a heavy burden to you. And it's this, how good then is good enough? So we go back to that zero to hundred percent graph, remember? And you say, well, if I'm here, I just got to keep being more and more good. And I can climb that ladder and one day I'll get to the point. I don't know where it is and I hope God grades on a curve. But sooner or later, I'm going to get to the point where I can say, look, God, I'm clean. I can commune with you now. You can come and commune with me. I'm good. But you always live with an agging question. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? Well, Pastor Jeff will come back to finish off that thought next time. We'll have to pause it there for today. 
Join me next time to hear the remainder of this message as Pastor Jeff wraps up this confrontation in Mark chapter 7, where the Pharisees confront Jesus about cleanliness. Jesus says the problem with that is it won't change your heart. You'll still find yourself to be self-centered, self-justified. When you start playing that game with God, thinking you can do enough to make yourself clean, you tend to severely overestimate your own goodness and severely underestimate God's holiness. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 